Welcome to Golf Better at Edwin Watts Golf. Episode 117. Hello everyone, my name is Tom Brussell and thanks so much for joining us. Whether you're a first-time listener or a long-time subscriber to the show, either way, we are glad you're with us. And our dynamic guest list for 2011 continues. This gentleman is fantastic. We are very, very lucky to have him. You may know him as a four-time winner on tour, two-time U.S. Amateur Champion, British Amateur Champion, or you may know him as the Commish, Mr. Commissioner from 1974 to 1994. Joining us from his home in Ponte Vedra, Florida, Mr. Dean Beeman. Dean, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, Tom, delighted to be with you this morning. Most all of our guests we've had this year, our listeners like to know, you got your start somewhere. You fell in love with the game of golf somewhere, somehow. Can you, you remember much about that, and what can you share with us about oh, that? It's a, it's a pretty simple, straightforward story. Um, uh, back when I was about 12 years old, I had two older brothers and an older sister. Uh, both our parents worked, and uh, my dad was concerned with three boys. I was the youngest that uh, that uh, with the summers off, and as we were getting a little older, there was nothing to get in but trouble. So he went to Sears and Roebuck and bought six sets of clubs and, a, and some group lessons and said the family's going to play golf. And he joined a little club uh, out in Bethesda, Maryland, and uh, I started playing golf because my dad didn't want us on the street. He wanted us to do something constructive and, and, and have a place to go when he was working. And my mom was working. So that's how I got started playing golf. And obviously you got pretty good at it. Started playing some junior tournaments and amateur tournaments, right? Actually, right away, I wasn't, you know, I played a little golf. And I was was kind of a football player. I was was not small for my size when I was young, but I never never kept growing. Um, So I really loved football. Uh, A pretty good athlete. But uh, I wasn't really good when I started out. And as a matter of fact, um, in, when I was 13, I played my first golf tournament. I shot 113 in a, in a, in a little in a junior in a high school in my ninth grade high school, I guess it was, or, or eighth grade. But you remember the score, right? Well, I, I remember it because I shot 113. It was at Congressional Country Club where they held the U.S. Open this year. As a matter of fact. <laughs> You won the 59 British Amateur and then the 60-63 U.S. Amateur. So you stayed as an amateur much longer than, than they do today, did you? And then you turned pro, I believe, 64? Yeah, I started playing. Uh, Tom, I started playing. Uh, I, I sort of tried to graduate out of junior golf while I was still a junior into, into regular. Uh, I, I qualified for the U.S. Open when I was in junior in high school and again when I was a senior. Didn't make the cut, but I didn't have to take final exams, which was kind of nice. Uh, but I I, uh, I I got interested in playing uh, at the top level of, of golf. So I I, uh, I I played in amateur golf. I, I won the, the Eastern Amateur four out of five years down at Portsmouth, Virginia, and, and Trans Mississippi. Uh, but I I injured my hand, my right hand, in in '63 um, when I. Uh, I was get, actually getting ready to turn professional, and I was eligible to play in the Masters in '63, and I was going to turn pro after playing the Masters. Well, I, I practicing in the winter time in the frozen ground. I jammed my right hand and and had a very very serious injury on in my right hand that plagued me for about three or four years. Did therapy, and and they had this new miracle medication uh, called. Uh, uh, 
I guess, uh, cortisone was, uh, and, and they injected that, and it just uh, wasn't getting better. And, and it was the dark ages of this kind of uh, finite surgery for, for wrist injuries, and, and finally went in in 66 and, and had an operation, and they transplanted a ligament in my right hand. I, I, they couldn't stop the inflammation, but they could stop the pain, which they did. And uh, once I knew I could practice and play, uh, up until that time, I, I could only play four or five tournaments a year, and, and it hurt like the devil after I practiced to hit 10 or 15 practice shots. So I wasn't, I wasn't in the kind of position to be able to play tournament golf uh, at the pro level. Uh, when my hand got better, then I decided to turn professional, which I did in 67. And won four times on tour, right? Yeah, I actually won five tournaments. One was unofficial, but uh, I won four official events. You know, back then, actually, quite interesting. I won, uh, I won $367,000 in five and a half years and, uh, and, and won those five tournaments for official. Somebody calculated it uh, based on today's money, and if, if I was playing back then in that five and a half years, I'd have won somewhere between 22 and $25 million. <laughs> <laughs> Dean Beeman joining us here on Golf Better. Dean, the time came when you jumped from, in a matter of months, from playing the tour to PGA Tour Commissioner. Talk about that, because that is really, really interesting. Well, I, I actually, uh, um, what happened was uh, I hurt my left hand the same way I did my right hand. In uh, about 70, 1971, actually I did it at the U.S. Open at Marion. And uh, so I struggled with that and went in rehab and got it isolated. And, and uh, finally in, in the fall of, uh, of 72, I had my left hand operated on. They did the same thing, did a ligament transplant. And I was just coming back. I, I, I started playing in March or April and, uh, you know, sort of getting my game in shape. And in May, I was on the tournament policy board, and the, the chairman, who was, who was then the chairman of the policy board, uh, Paul Austin, the chairman of Coca-Cola Company, uh, took me aside and told me that Joe Dye was going to retire as commissioner, the first commissioner, and he wanted me to, uh, he wanted to know if I was interested, would I, would I, would I become commissioner? And I thought about it a week or so and called him back and said, you know, Never quit anything that I did when I wasn't doing it very well. So I really turned the job down and went back to my practice and play. And, and in the uh, late summer, I won a tournament, my, my fourth tournament. And uh, about a week after that, I thought about it, uh, where I was going in my life, and I called Paul Austin back and said, Paul, you know, I, you saw I won a tournament last week. I want you to know that I can walk away now. If you'd like me to take the job as commissioner, I'd be. I'd like you to consider me. So, I, I wouldn't. I, I turned it down once, and then after I won a tournament, and I felt in my own heart that I that I could walk away with some success under my belt. Uh, then I decided that, that I'd entertain being commissioner. How difficult was the transition going to being what you call in the business world being promoted amongst your peers? All of a sudden, you were one of them, and now you're their boss. Well, there were some some difficulties, but uh, I was because I didn't turn professional with my contemporaries. I was sort of uh, in no man's land. You know, I didn't turn pro until I was thirty, 
the guys that I knew, you know, Phil Rogers and Jack Nicholas and, and Al Guybers and those guys were, were veteran players by then. I wasn't one of the guys. When I came out as a rookie, I was 30, and I didn't uh, assimilate with the rookies at that time. So I was sort of on my own out there. I had a big family, and, and, and I traveled back and forth. I spent a lot of time at home. You know, my, when I, we played back then, you, to make a living, you had to play in 25 to 30, 32 tournaments. Uh, so I went home every Tuesday night. I didn't hang around. Uh, every Sunday night, came back Tuesday to practice and play. Uh, so I wasn't one of, you know, I wasn't really close friends with a lot of people out there. So I was sort of a, so I, I was sort of in a position that, that, that it wasn't uh, a problem. When you took over and moved into the chair, did you have immediately the vision of where you thought the tour might be 10, 15 or so years down the road? Or did that kind of evolve over time? No, I had a, I had a strong vision. I had, I had a pretty strong feeling that golf was, uh, what, what you know, the, the players themselves, you know, for, first, I guess my first thought was as a player that we weren't financially rewarded like other athletes. You know, tennis was way ahead of us. Football, baseball, basketball had huge television contracts. All those players were making a lot of money relative to the tour. Well, certainly there were superstars, and they, you know, Jack Nicklaus and Arnold Palmer made a lot of money outside of, uh, of the tour. But total prize money was $8 million on the whole tour for 47 events when I retired in 1970, uh, when I took over in 1974. So there, there wasn't a lot of money being made by a lot of players on the playing field. And I felt that golf uh, had uh, greater value than other sports, uh, should be rewarded, and the athletes should be rewarded. And so I, my vision for golf was the, the, the level of a major sport like basketball, baseball, football, and, and those other sports. That was my vision of what golf ought to be, and I thought we were, I, I thought we should be there. Probably at the time, golf was probably on the level of something like, you know, pro bowling tour or something. You know, you'd see it occasionally on, t- on TV. You know, actually, the- what happened was is that uh, bowling had more television than golf and had more money from television than golf. They were bigger than we were. There's so much to cover in that, and we're going to go a little bit on how people can learn more about your time on tour. But one thing i got to ask you is the move from New York to Ponte Vedra for the tour office, Some of the, a lot of people alive today think that the, the tour has always been at Ponte Vedra. Talk about that, because and, and, and that, that was obviously the, the crown jewel, the move from New York to Ponte Vedra. Well, what happened was actually the, uh, there was uh, the intervening move because when I became commissioner, the only condition I placed on the board, I said I would take the job, but I wouldn't live in New York and work there. So uh, my condition for taking a job, the only one I had was that I wanted to move the, the office from, from New York to Washington, which we did. And so it was in Washington, D.C., where I lived for five years. And then we moved to Ponte Vedra. Was the land really bought for a dollar with the understanding that it was going to be developed and the office would move? Yes, it was. We bought uh, 415 acres for a dollar and then uh, used the land to, to get a uh, non-recourse mortgage and got local business people to join the club, uh, what we call charter members. I got 3,000 local people to be associate members of the club, and we built the first permanent players club here. For one dollar, it's all in the that, that whole episode and how we did that is in the book Golf Driving Force, 
and uh, it was a uh, you know it wasn't uh, universally accepted at the time. Uh, there was a lot of friction about it amongst players that didn't. A lot of players didn't think we ought to do it, and uh, so you know that was one of the hurdles that uh, you know it was one of the things of the many things that uh, and hurdles that I had to overcome to to make progress. And, and bring golf to where it is today. Well, Dean, you almost you did a great segue there. You said it's all in that book, and I was going to ask you what you've been doing to keep yourself busy and these days. And one is this: it's the number one, it's it's the most talked about golf book of the year. Dean Beeman Golf's Driving Force. It's in its second publication right now. Talk a little bit about what drove you to write the book and, and what the listeners can find in that book. Well, I, I always wanted to write a book about uh, how the tour was built. And, and how we came from being a minor sport to a major sport. Uh, but I decided I wasn't going to do it for five years after I retired. Uh, I, you know, when I was commissioner, I was, I was roundly second-guessed by everybody. And I didn't want a book like that out uh, to, to be a burden to the, to the people who were now running the tour. So I felt, uh, you know, a five-year period of time, and then I'd sit down and, and kind of chronicle the strategy and, and, and what we and the hurdles we have to overcome to become what we are today. Well, when I just started doing that and, and, and went to publishers, everybody told me, hey, wait, you should have done this five years ago. <laughs> and so couldn't interest anybody in doing it. And ultimately, after a number of years, uh, uh, Adam Shupak and I uh, became friends and and, and talked about this and, and decided to do this book. And, I, and the only way we could do it, of course, was to self-publish, which, which is what we did. It's uh, been very successful. Adam did a great job. Uh, I gave him 100% editorial authority. I said, you know, here, here's what I want to do, Adam. I, I want to tell you what, what, I, what we did, uh, why we did it, how we got about it, what the hurdles were to, to overcome, and and then I want you to go out and interview everybody you can who was involved, uh, every living human being, uh, and and get their take on what did we do, uh, and and you can and you you have my my permission to write anything they want to say. Uh, I get to say what I say, and and anybody who was involved uh, at the time uh, as a board member or a uh, or a player. Or, uh, or the television network people, you, you used to interview them all. They can tell, I couldn't care less what they say. So you have 100% authority to write whatever you want to write. Dean, and the topics in the book range from? Well, they, they, they start out with, with, with a defining moment. There was a point in time uh, in 1983 when we were making some real progress in, uh, in tournament players clubs, in our television, uh, in our in and commercially sponsored tournaments which supported television, our marketing efforts and licensing. And we were making some real progress. We were, we were doing the things that other sports had been done that, that, that made them very successful. And, and Jack, Jack Nicholas and Arnold Palmer and a number of players decided in their own mind that we were a threat to their business. Uh, and, and, and we had this, uh, very, very public controversy and confrontation in 83. And uh, we start the book out because that's the defining moment of the tour. Had the players won that battle, the tour would be a shadow of what it is today. Uh, 
but the, the 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 tour administration and we won that battle and we're able to continue and 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 we have that what we have today but without the ability to to uh, to to associate ourselves and contract with major corporations without the licensing and marketing programs we have and without the development of the tournament players club to enhance the the fan uh experience at golf tournaments and and the electronic scoreboard that require commercial uh, uh, money to be able to afford to do to enhance the experience of fans the the, the PGA tour would be a shadow whatever it is today so that was the, that was the defining moment uh, and also my defining moment because they they wanted to fire me they wanted me down the road and uh, if if uh, frankly if I'd lost that battle and without the ability to have the same tools that other sports have to compete in the marketplace, I didn't want to be a commissioner anyway. Again, the, the book is Dean Beeman Golf's Driving Force in its second printing. You can find it on Amazon.com, either the electronic copy or the hard copy, booklegger.com, GolfSmart, and GolfsDrivingForce.com is the website. One other new book is out. It's the Edwin Watts Golf Holiday Book. You turn to the training aid section, and what pops up? But <laughs> something from Dean Beeman. Something else keeping you busy, Commissioner. Talk about that. Well, of course, I I, I love golf, and I love um, the little nuances of what makes uh, great golfers great. And and I've noticed uh, over the years, and noticed even myself, that uh, the putter, my putter, has never been aimed. Uh, where I thought it was aimed, and I and I talked to teachers, people who run these golf schools, and somewhere north of eighty percent, as many as ninety percent of all players who go to a a specialized golf school that has the laser equipment and put on your putter to see where you're aiming your putter, the ability of the of an individual player to point the putter where he thinks it's pointed, the face is shocking. It's 80, 90 percent of people don't have it aimed where they think it's aimed. So, um, with that as a, as a general observation, and also it was my own problem too. I created this very simple device that uh, you can stand two or three feet from the hole uh, with a ball and and know exactly where the putter blade is faced. Uh, it's called Aim Check. Um, they're, they're, they're two little prongs that fit on the heel and toe of the putter. Uh, you can keep them in your golf bag. They, you know, they retail for something like nine ninety five, ten bucks. It only takes you 10, 10 or 15 seconds to put them on and two seconds to take them off, and you can walk from the practice tee to the putting green, put them on, uh, check your aim for, for the day to make sure and reinforce uh, where the putter is, is aimed so that you can be more accurate in your alignment. And uh, and it's just a very very simple device uh, that uh, that uh, I say only costs you ten dollars. You don't have to go to some expert. You can find out yourself where your putter's aimed, and most people don't have it aimed where they think it is. It's like Ken Venturi said earlier in the year, and over and over in his career, good players don't get out of swing; they get out of alignment. And here's a perfect example. Well, you know, it's even more insidious for a really good player. Um, if you're aimed incorrectly, what you do is you learn how to compensate for that. And you, if you're aimed to the left, uh, what you do, earn, you learn how to do with experience and, and, and time. If you keep missing to the left, you, you shove it to the right and put it in the hole. The problem is when you have a really important putt 
and you, you really zero in on it, and you concentrate not on the hole but on the stroke, which is what you do when the pressure's on, you end up making a good stroke and hit it where it's aimed, <laughs> not where you push it. And so it's very insidious. You must aim the putter on its intended line, and and if you don't know where that is, your 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 chances of making a putter are diminished. So this this could probably for the average player, and and this is very important uh, inside of four or five feet. You know, you don't make too many ten footers or fifteen or twenty footers, but if you know where the putter's aimed inside of three or four or five feet and can make most of those because the putt is aimed correctly, you're going to improve your score overnight. And the product is AimCheck and available at Edwin Watts Golf, edwinwattsgolf.com or 1-800-874-0146. Mr. Beeman, it's been great having you. Before I let you go, I know you're going to get on a plane and go over to Australia for a few weeks. Every, uh, every episode, we try to give something away to our listeners. And I wonder if you'd help me with this one. What we have is a SkyCaddy SGX unit, GPS unit that's... Um, we have about three or 400 entries for this, and we've done the random check, and we pulled the name out of the hat, and I'll let you announce the winner. Gabe Reeves, Ontario County Fairview. Well, congratulations. Uh, anybody who plays golf today uh, needs to have a device like this because if you don't have to know how far it is to the hole, how do you know what club to hit? Well, Mr. Commissioner, it's been great having you on. You're going to be traveling around the world. Final thoughts for our listeners? Well, uh, just just uh, just know, uh, as Ken Venturi says, if you um, uh, m- most most uh, swing problems come from alignment. Uh, that's in putting as well as in full shot. So uh, where you're aimed it has a huge influence on how you swing the club. Thanks so much, Dean, and safe travels to you. And we'll do it again sometime. All right, Tom. Look forward to it. Take care. Uh, talk to you again. Thank you. Yes, and thank you again, Mr. Commissioner, and thanks to you. Our listeners, and join us next time when we have another episode of Golf Better at edwinwattsgolf.com. So long, everyone.